Welcome to the Great Ideas Show produced by WKXL. I'm Matt Robeson. Our topic today, cybersecurity. Revelations at the end of 2020 that dozens of U.S. government agencies were penetrated by Russian hackers served as a massive wake-up call on an issue that really affects all of us. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency said that hack poses a grave risk to federal, state, and local governments, as well as private companies and organizations. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Ransomware has taken entire state and local governments offline, costing millions in recovery dollars. Our citizens, including especially senior citizens, have lost millions of dollars to cyber criminals. And we're losing our most closely guarded national security secrets and intellectual property. So in this episode, we first want to understand what cybersecurity looks like today, what's working, what the problems are. And then we're going to hear some great ideas for how to get it right. And to do that, our guest is Michael Garcia. He's the senior policy advisor in the National Security Program at Third Way, a top Washington, D.C. think tank. But before joining Third Way, Michael was also a senior staffer for the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which Congress asked to develop a strategic approach to defending the United States in cyberspace and against cyber attacks. Michael, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Really, really happy to be on the show. Well, we're really happy to have you and your expertise. So uh, let's jump into it. And from a high level, at the risk of asking a kind of obvious question, what is cybersecurity? What exactly are we talking about here? No, that, that's a great question. And I think really just in one sentence, it's basically the way in which various uh, bad actors can infiltrate computer systems or internet devices to carry out their malicious ends. And I think a way to boil this down is your ransomware example. And I think that's a good way to kind of concretize this conversation. So I think a lot of your listeners have heard of ransomware before, and you already mentioned it. These are uh, incidents in which hospitals and schools are being impacted, in which it's a form of a bug that encrypts the access to your file. So basically, you can no longer see your Word document. It's going to be all jumbled in different kinds of numbers and letters, and it doesn't make any sense. And what happens is there's a bad guy on the RN who sends you a message to say, hey, I encrypted your uh, device. You can no longer use it. But if you give me $1,000 in Bitcoin, I can unlock it for you. And so that's basically ransomware in a nutshell. But how do they do this? Really, I think a lot of listeners will remember back in the day when you'd get an email from a Nigerian prince who told you, hey, if you just send me $1,000, then I'll give you untold sums of cash. Well, we're doing ransomware actors doing the exact same thing in this form in which they'll send you an email saying, hey, I'm Jan from accounting, or this is Bob, the old time friend, send you an email and say, hey, can you click this link to look at this news story or a file? And that's how they encrypt your device if you click on it. The next question from that is, well, who are these people? And that really is a difficult question. And that comes down to attribution. And in that sense is who is perpetrating these attacks? And really, it's a whole host of people. It could be lone actors, just petty criminals who can get access to malware. And now in this stage, anyone who has access to the internet can buy malware on the dark web. Or it could be very nefarious and go all the way up to nation states, similar to what you mentioned with the Russians, as well as the Chinese, who are either carrying out these attacks themselves or abetting criminals to carry out those attacks. So in a nutshell, that is, uh, oh, go on, yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so it sounds like the scale of this is, is pretty broad. You could be talking about individuals 
um, getting their personal files attacked. You could be talking about institutions. So you're running a hospital. You have to know what medicines your patients are taking, who's checked into your hospital, who's scheduled for surgery. And all of a sudden you don't have access to any of that because of some criminal somewhere who's broken into your system. And you're also suggesting that this goes up to the very top of the, of the US government, our agencies, and the way we run our country and the most fundamental functions of our government. Is that right? It is, it is. And I think too, going back to the hospital example, this is really real because I think so often when we talk about cybersecurity, we think about it in just lines of code or this digital infrastructure, but it has real world consequences. And a few months ago, we actually had the first known death linked to ransomware. A German hospital was attacked by ransomware and there was a patient who could not get a emergency surgery that she needed. And in the process of being transferred to a different hospital, she died from that transition. And so this is a real world scenario that has tangible consequences. The hack that you mentioned earlier, sure, there are, we still don't know the impact of that. And what we think is that the Russians were able to get access into internal uh, systems and they could monitor emails, they have user credentials. But what I really want to stress is that these have real world consequences. And that's where it really relates to every single one of us. So if I was going to ask you, who should be worried about this? Your answer sounds like everyone. Every, because nowadays we all, to some extent, except for a very few of us, live our lives interacting online. We use computers for our finances, for our health, for our, our, everything we do in our lives. And the same thing is true of our institutions. The same thing is true of our businesses. The same thing is true of our governments. So every single person who's listening to this could be affected by the way we deal with cybersecurity. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think either you've been impacted or you know somebody who's been impacted or maybe you don't even know you've been impacted. And I think a crazy stat is this, is that one in four American households have been impacted by cybercrime. And that could be either you've had your social security number stolen and because of that stolen number, your unemployment insurance benefits could be taken from you without you even knowing. Say you might not need it right now, but two months from now, you may need it. And sure enough, the employment Bureau says, actually, you already took it out and you had no idea. Uh, it could also impact you when it comes to your children that they're doing e-learning. A ransomware might impact the school district and it impedes their ability to access their education. And also, too, there was a fascinating survey that found that of a list of 13 crimes, including cybercrime, including other forms of, say, like auto theft and home break-ins, 70% of respondents said having their information stolen by hackers, whether it's credit card information or personal identifiable information, as the top concern Yet, when we look at the enforcement rate when it comes to going after the bad guys, only three out of every 1,000 incidents that reports FBI see some type of enforcement action, whether that's an indictment or arrest or something to that effect. So it's one of the most prevalent forms of crimes, yet the one that has the lowest enforcement rate. Wow. So you're saying 25% of Americans have already been impacted by some form of cybercrime and something like point. 3% of the criminals involved have actually been pursued by law enforcement. That's, that's quite a ratio. So it sounds like massive problem, massive scale, massive consequences definitely rises to the level of something that at a policy level, the US government needs to take a role in and has been taking a role in. So when did that start? When did the government get involved in cybersecurity? Right. And so this really comes back down to around 1998 in the 
waning years of the Clinton administration, they signed an executive document that really saw the importance of critical infrastructure and its ties to uh, the online environment. And when I say the critical infrastructure, there are 16 sectors, and these boil down to energy, telecommunications, chemical, transportation, so on and so forth. And what the Clinton administration saw is that, hey, this is the dawn of the online age, and all these sectors are getting online. As a result, their threat landscape is growing because they have uh, vulnerabilities connected to them. Since then, there's been building blocks from that, and Congress and the federal government has been doing more and more things. So case in point, uh, in the military with an Department of Defense, we created something called U.S. Cyber Command in 2008, which is basically the offensive capability for the U.S. government to go pursue malicious adversaries in the online domain. Consequently, in the defensive realm, we created something called the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, which you mentioned earlier on, which I'll refer to as CISA as its acronym. That is a very new organization. It was uh, born in 2018. There was a previous organization before that, but it really didn't have the resources or the authority that CISA does now. So all the way back from 1998, 20 years later, we just established a defensive organization. Now, there are other entities like the FBI who does things, U.S. Secret Service does things. So there are various agencies involved that are doing different things, but we are still very early on in trying to see what all a government can do, and what's the best way these agencies can tackle the problem. So it sounds like the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, so that's uh, CISA, CISA, uh, the, the acronym. CISA. CISA, CISA. So they're relatively new, and they're not alone. There are other efforts going on from the federal government. And I imagine that there are also offices at the state level that are also involved to some degree in protecting state infrastructure and fighting crime within their states. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think, um, I, so one of my previous jobs is that I used to work for an organization called the National Government Association. I was a senior policy advisor there in which I would work very closely with states and their governor's offices to look at their cybersecurity problems and to help governor's offices establish policies that can orders to bolster their cyber defenses. And I actually had really good partners in New Hampshire. And actually, New Hampshire was a interesting role model because they created something called the Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center. And basically what this was, was the, an entity to help establish information sharing within New Hampshire, but also the New England region as well. And so basically what would happen is that if New Hampshire received information from, say, a water utility or electric company or from the federal government, this entity would take it in, it would digest it, and it would push it out to all other entities that it said, hey, we think you might have this vulnerability, or just an FYI, here's the thing you should be aware of. So New Hampshire's not alone. California, New Jersey, others have systems like that. States are establishing their own advisory boards, and they all look very different. However, no state is the same. You see one state, you only see one state. Uh, but they are all pretty much being left to their own devices in terms of how they're building their cybersecurity strategies and their policies. And some states are more advanced than others. Some are putting more money into it. And I think what boils down to is, is a notion of cyber illiteracy. And that's not necessarily to criticize any policymakers because cybersecurity is a technical challenge. It involves coding and involves computer science. Uh, but we can boil it down to layman's terms. And I think that's where folks like myself need to really convey and really boil it down to the human factor. And as a result, it's really difficult because cybersecurity is just one policy area out of education, healthcare, 
so on and so forth that policymakers have to choose from. And it's much easier to say, hey, with this money, we can build a new school versus, hey, with this money, we can build better cyber defenses. One, you can see, the other really can't. So that's where the breakdown comes down when it comes to prioritization with these policies. Well, you brought up the word integration, and it's interesting because it sounds like you have efforts in all of the states. And as you said, if you know one state, you know one state. It's not like that gives you a picture of the whole United States. And then you referred before to there's a new uh, agency at the federal level, but there's also efforts going on from the FBI and uh, NSA. And so to what extent are all of those efforts integrated? One of the lessons learned, it seemed, from 9-11 and from subsequent uh, efforts to fight terrorism is that we've sometimes lacked integration. We've, we've lacked that coordination factor uh, at the federal level. Is that the case today? Unfortunately, yes. And we, I'll, I'll back up to the problem because back in that earlier document that I mentioned that the Clinton administration signed, they created a, let's say, a cyber czar in the White House. And back then, his name was Richard Clark, and he became this cyber czar. And from then to about 2018, every White House, every president had a cyber czar to do exactly what you're mentioning, integrating efforts, coordinating across all the various agencies to make sure that their efforts are aligned to one common mission, one common goal. That position ebbs and flowed, the role responsibilities kind of changed depending on the makeup of the White House, but there's always somebody there until 2018 when Trump administration got rid of the role and as a result, coordination kind of went by the wayside. That doesn't mean it wasn't happening, there were still informal mechanisms, but there wasn't a point person to kind of help quarterback everything. Thankfully, you mentioned one of my previous uh, jobs working on the US Cyberspace Learning Commission. One of our primary recommendations was the creation of a national cyber director, which would be that person, that point person in the White House to do all those things. And thankfully, this past December and the latest National Defense Operations Act for 2021, Congress put in this position that is Senate confirmed to play that quarterback role. And President-elect Biden has not yet uh, named that person, but I know they are in the process of naming that individual. And I'm sure that would be one of the first people to try to get through the nomination process because of the criticality of that role. So alluding back to the massive breakdown that we saw at the end of 2020, or at least that came to light at the end of 2020, and obviously this was far reaching and we don't have all the answers on exactly what happened, what went down, what Russian hackers were able to access, penetrate, what information we lost. Can you tell us what we do know about what happened, about that massive breakdown in U.S. cybersecurity? Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought this up because this is really starting to make us think and question our current policies. So back in mid-December 2020, we found out that a company called SolarWinds, which is a company that really not a lot of people ever heard of. Frankly, I never heard of it as well, but it's basically a IT network uh, management system that just sat in the back end and just watched the flow of traffic over uh, a company's infrastructure. And so this company was the provider for several U.S. agencies, almost nearly all of the Fortune 500 companies. It was everywhere. There was a software system that I had called Orion, which basically did what I just said, and it would push out updates to its customers, very similar to when Apple sends you an iOS update on your phone you click accept and it fixes you know, the little bugs and whatnot. 
What we come to find out is that back in February of 2020, to our knowledge, the Russians were able to infiltrate SolarWinds. They were able to put malware into an Orion update, and SolarWinds was unaware of it. So when it pushed an update in March 2020, it infected at least 18,000 customers. And to our knowledge, we do not know the extent of how many of those 18,000 have been infected. We think now it's way less. We don't know what access the Russians had to those systems. But what we do know, at least, is that their own impact, National Security Agency, Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, other various agencies, they're able to impact critical infrastructure partners, staying locals, and the list keeps growing day and day and day. Uh, thankfully, it seems like the ramifications as far as real-world consequences are minimal for now. But what we don't know is the information the Russians were able to glean to carry out future attacks. And I think in this context, there's been a, a big conversation about espionage versus war. Because I think when people hear this, like, wow, that's, that's pretty serious that the Russians were able to impact 18,000 entities. And you're talking about really serious uh, federal agencies and 4,500 companies. But what we need to remember is that espionage is a legal act. We have spies all across the country. We know that spies operate here. And it's always been something that's been going on since the dawn of time. The issue is that what do our adversaries do with that information? And this is something that this effort was probably the largest in modern history when it comes to espionage. And the information there was a glean is very worrisome. And what they could do with that is... Uh, troubling because it could have real-world consequences that we're still grappling with right now. So the, it keeps changing day and day, but it's really questioning, did our policies actually work? How can we improve? How can we make sure we can avoid a solar winds 2.0, if you will? Wow. So just so I get that straight, because this is sort of a uh, stop you in your tracks kind of story. One company, one link in the whole chain of how big Fortune 500 companies, our federal government agencies, one company in that chain got infected, got attacked by Russian hackers, and they were able to insert a, a, a malware, which, uh, you know, I, I, I guess you could explain in technical terms, but um, mal, bad, I mean, you know, a bad piece of software <laughs> to serve their purposes, not ours. They, they slipped it in there, and just from that one thing that, that, that comes across people's desks, like the way you get an update to your iPhone, looks legitimate, they were able to impact 18,000 entities and counting. Now, that sounds like truly a massive breakdown. So let me just ask, is that sort of the big problem or is that sort of the tip of the iceberg? I mean, what, what does the landscape of problems that we need to fix in cybersecurity look like? So that's the issue. We don't know if it's tip the iceberg or not, because we just found out in December that they did this back in February. That means they were on those networks all those months doing whatever they wanted to do with the companies and the agencies. So we don't know any other systems they might have infiltrated, any other actors like the Iranians or the Chinese government might have infiltrated. So this could be the entire scale of the problem. It could just be maybe the least smallest problem we have. We just, we truly don't know. And that's the issue. It's a constant game of whack-a-mole. And so this comes down to the theory of deterrence. I think many of your older listeners will remember that during the Cold War, we have the concept of nuclear deterrence, right? That the Soviet Union 
wouldn't launch a nuclear strike against the United States because they know the United States has second strike capabilities to attack the USSR. So that's why you never saw a hot war, but you had the Cold War and factions like the Vietnam War and Afghanistan, so on and so forth. It's harder in cyberspace to deter our adversaries because they don't really know our capabilities because it's invisible, right? You can see nuclear warheads. You can see where they're stationed at. You can't really see where our quote-unquote cyber bombs are, right? And so as a result, our adversaries can have this risk calculus in that we think we can get away with this type of activity, may not get discovered, and we think that the impact or the consequences may be very minimal. So in the grand scheme of things, we have been unable to say, if you do this thing to us in the cyberspace, there will be X consequences. And it's because it's such a gray zone of operating because, like I said, espionage has always been a traditional form of activity that all states have kind of allowed to operate. But in this scale, it is incredible the amount of information they're able to glean. So what does that mean when it comes to establishing future policies or to actually deter our adversaries? All right. So just to make sure that we have the full scope of the problem, I've heard integration as a challenge because there are so many U.S. government entities involved in fighting cybercrime and fighting hacking in seeing to our cybersecurity. Uh, I've heard deterrence uh, as a problem, being able to wield a credible threat of being able to go after our adversaries. Anything else that that is a is a looming problem that we need to fix? I think real quickly, it's just the amount of cybercrime that's occurring below the surface and that it is crime that the federal government does not get involved in. Very much like common theft, staying local deals that not federal government. We need a way in which to raise the ties of staying local law enforcement to address that issue that impacts everybody. All right. So that takes us through at least a, a quick overview of the scale of an issue that affects all of us. It affects us in our daily lives. It affects us in our state and local governments. It affects us in the companies that we work at or deal with every day. And of course, it affects us in our government. Let's talk about some ideas. Michael, what are your great ideas for fixing the problems we face and getting it right? Thanks, Matt. And I think that's the amazing thing is that there are concrete ideas that we can implement and they are at times slow hanging fruit to really big and bold innovative ideas. And my colleagues and I at Third Way, we actually just released a report this past November. It's called a roadmap to strengthen U.S. cyber enforcement that your listeners can look at. We developed over 60 recommendations that the incoming Biden administration and the 117th Congress can take on and it's, it's a very long report, but I would encourage readers to at least skim it because there's some fascinating information in there. So I think really there's three things. It kind of touches upon the things that we discussed in the earlier segment. First and foremost is this uh, coordination at the federal level, right? Like I mentioned earlier, thankfully, we now are going to have a national cyber director who can coordinate all the efforts at the agency level to make sure it's all going to the same goal. But also, outside of that, we need to engage with our private partners, our state and local partners, and our international allies. And I think a great stat is that 85% of critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector, which means the government can only do so much, so many, so many carrots and sticks it can actually use, and really what it means is true partnerships. So what does that mean? It means that the federal government needs to take actionable intelligence and push it down to their partners, and at the same time, able to intake information, digest it, and make sure the appropriate agencies receive it. 
Right now, there's so many silos in that if the FBI receives something, that doesn't mean the DHS is aware of and vice versa. It doesn't mean they're not sharing. It just means that there's still silos that needs to be broken down. So that's number one. Number two, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is that we really need to improve our staying local capability. Right now, only 45% of local law enforcement agencies have the ability to analyze digital evidence. And digital evidence is basically the files, the lines of code, other kinds of incriminating evidence that's left behind the scene of a computer crime, like on your laptop, on your cell phone, on your network, but they don't have the ability to analyze it. And also, as I mentioned earlier, it's not really fellow government's job to investigate every single ransomware. They just don't have the resources. So we need to figure out what is the best relationship between the federal government and staying locals in order to work together to address that. And that's going to encompass having grant programs. There's various amounts of criminal justice grant programs that just needs to be tailored to have cybersecurity and cybercrime as a part of that. Likewise, there's various task forces at state fusion centers that I'm sure uh, many listeners are familiar with that became the wake of 9-11 to help improve coordination between federal government like FBI and U.S. Secret Service and state and local law enforcement and homeland security agencies. How can we leverage those entities to improve cybersecurity coordination between uh, state and federal government? And lastly, we need to engage our international allies because so many of these perpetrators behind these crimes and these attacks reside overseas. So in order for us to put handcuffs on these bad guys, we really need to work with our partners. And what that means is providing assistance and training to international law enforcement, but also holding accountable those nation states like China and Russia who are openly abetting uh, criminals to carry out their deeds. So it's a combination of aid, but also imposing consequences on those who are allowing that type of behavior to operate within their borders. So those are the three big bucket issue areas that uh, we address in our report, and it's lots of tangible recommendations within there to kind of get the ball moving in this respect. It really was a great in-depth report. And just to kind of read back to you what I just heard. So three big ideas in here, break down the silos and get better coordination, build up our local and state resources so that we can cover more ground, give them better tools and capabilities, and then engage our allies and really make our adversaries overseas pay a price while enabling the people who are on our side to stand with us and go after the bad guys. So all great ideas. Let me just ask before we dive any further into, into any of those, were there things that didn't make the cut? I mean, it's a long report as you alluded to, but um, you really did look at the whole landscape of policy ideas out there to improve our cybersecurity. Were there ideas that have been talked about that you thought about that maybe ended up on the cutting room floor or you decided were too flawed to advocate for? I think we were very much trying to not boil the ocean. And I know it's hard to say that when it's a hundred page report and it looks like we tried boiling the ocean, but we we're very much focused on those instances that impacted in everyday individuals and small businesses and really just crime. So as a result, we really weren't looking at earlier I mentioned Cyber Command and their offense capabilities because reports like U.S. Cyberspace Learning Commission had a whole chapter about that. So we did a very good job of trying to focus on that. Um, and I think there's other issue areas that we didn't focus on, such as what's the best way that the federal government can protect its supply chain. So, for example, the solar wind incident, right? We didn't really talk about what's the best way for the federal government to protect supply chain. Because once again, there are other reports, DHS task forces, that are looking at that issue area. What we saw when we were conceptualizing this project back in 2018, that no one was really talking about cybercrime. 
And so we thought that there was a need to fill that gap. So I want to say that there's necessarily competing proposals because this gap was kind of open and in the air, but we're trying just to fill a niche area that we thought needed some uh, conversation around. So I very much sympathize with the idea of not trying to boil the ocean because as you say, this is an awfully big ocean that we're talking about here. It is complicated. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's highly technical, as you alluded to. There are so many moving parts. There's so many people and agencies and countries and entities involved. Is that the biggest barrier to solving problems? Or what are the biggest barriers to fixing the problems that we see today? And do you know how to overcome them? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you hit it around the head right there. It's Cybersecurity is so challenging compared to other national security problems because it requires partnerships. We need, federal government needs to partner with state and locals because they're the first ones who are going to be called. They're the ones who are going to have to answer the quote unquote street cybercrime. You have to work with private companies because they are the networks that are being abused to carry out these attacks by malicious actors. And you also have to work with international partners because that's where the criminals reside. So as a result, the government doesn't have a monopoly of force, if you will, to do as it pleases like say nuclear warfare, where there's no one else involved, it's just the federal government. So it then creates this fascinating conversation as to what are the right carrots and sticks to incentivize everybody to do the right thing, and when's the best to use a carrot, when's the best to use a stick. So at this point, I'll go back to staying locals. There is a grant program, it's called the Everburn Memorial Justice Assistance Grant. It's been around for say, I think 20 or 30 years. It's a primary grant function that DOJ gives to staying local criminal justice agencies to tackle a whole host of criminal justice issues from um, low level street crime to helping with community policing to helping uh, with the opioid uh, epidemic as well that we've been going through. That uh, grant program could be tailored just ever so slightly to include cybercrime and as a result, it would help agencies to justify their grant proposals to use that type of funds. That's just one example that we're looking at. That's one really good carrot. And there's so many other kind of examples like that in which we can just look at existing policies that already exist and tailor it for cybercrime. So a lot of times what it is that we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, it's just trying to modernize the wheel for cybercrime. So really it comes down to, this This sounds like an awfully uh, intangible prescription, but it sounds like part of what you're suggesting is we need to just think about this differently. It's a matter of priority. It's a matter of modernizing. It's a matter of making sure that we're thinking about cybercrime as a more front and center issue, just given the scale and the importance of the issue. Does it, does it really just come down to that level of focus and awareness? Or are there more technical budgetary aspects to this that also kind of go hand in hand? Yeah, I think, I think it's the latter, right? To me, this is a human issue, not a technical issue. We understand how to fix bugs and code. What we don't understand is how to make the people make those patches. There are so many times in which a vulnerability exists, say like in a Microsoft Windows update that Microsoft will say, hey, you should patch this, or they'll say, hey, you should patch this, but the system operator of a business or a small business or just individual just doesn't do it, right? So you have the technical ability, it's just getting people to do the right thing. And it's just that people problem. And as a result, it, it is also too budgetary, right? There are so many other issue areas and cybersecurity is so intangible that it's very difficult for city council members to say, 
we can spend this funds to fix roads, to fix this pothole, or we can spend it on this amorphous idea of cyber defenses, and we don't know the return on investment, right? It's a counterfactual. How can we prove that we prevented something from actually occurring? And so what we need to do is to really make that return on investment real. But the issue is that this comes back down to metrics. It's a topic we haven't discussed yet, and so I'm kind of glad to bring it up right now, is that we actually don't know how often cybercrime occurs. There's a outstanding fact that I think only one in 10 cybercrime is actually reported. And that's because, A, people are embarrassed. They are embarrassed. They clicked on a link that they shouldn't have clicked on. Um, maybe they visited a site they shouldn't have been on. Um, but also, maybe they don't know who to report to. Uh, maybe they try reporting it, and law enforcement is like, actually, we don't do this, call the FBI. And some people are a little nervous calling the FBI, rightfully so. You know, it's, it's a big organization, and you don't necessarily know how to do it. So we don't know the scale of the problem. And as a result, we don't know how many resources to put towards it. Because at the end of the day, what policymakers really care about are numbers and figures. And we need to show that if we invest X amount of dollars, that it's going to move the needle down. So we do have recommendations in terms of how we can incentivize more reporting mechanisms. Case in point, we really didn't talk about this report, but there's something, it's an interesting concept, how if you get in a car accident, in order for you to follow your insurance claim, you have to follow a police report. And that police report then goes into a database, a database that we can then analyze, say, there's been X amount of um, car accidents, so on and so forth, and you put together their policies. That's not the case right now when it comes to cybercrime. There is cyber insurance for small, medium businesses, and even private individuals if they want that, but it doesn't require a police report, nor is there a requirement for cyber insurance companies or businesses to report to the federal level. And that's a conversation we're having right now, but as a result, we just don't know how often this occurs. And so when I say that three in 1,000, that is probably way less. It's probably way more than that number actually is. And the one in four Americans being impacted is probably almost every single one of us. Because at the end of the day, when Equifax got breached, when Target got breached, we've all been so stores. We all use those uh, credit card monitoring systems. Probably every single one of Americans' personal identifiable information has been stolen and breached in some shape, way, or form, and we don't know about it. So it's a big issue that we need to quantify and to bring down. Well, that's a really fascinating point that you're raising, because one of the things that I like to ask guests is to sort of play the devil's advocate argument for me on whatever mm -hmm. policy prescription that they're making. And it sounds to me like the devil's advocate argument to all of these policy fixes that you're advocating is, eh, it's a counterfactual. We can't, we don't know how much of a problem this really is. If I put $100,000 into this, it's a lot less tangible and uh, you know than than building a new playground or you know reopening the school and gosh darn it I've you know if I'm an elected official I've got to face the voters next year. So it seems like part of the issue really is getting a handle on what is the scale of the problem and you alluded before to one in four Americans has already been impacted only three out of a thousand criminals have actually been pursued. And the numbers are probably much, much worse than that. So just to draw an analogy for a second, one of the things we've seen with the COVID pandemic is the lack of monitoring, the lack of understanding of where is the virus, who's, who's getting sick, what's the contact tracing status. And until we got eyes on where this is, how it's manifesting, who's being affected, who's getting sick, it's awfully hard to fight it. So am I drawing the right analogy here that maybe as a first step, we have to get 
boring as this sounds, we have to get our data in order. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's absolutely right. You can't tackle the issue if you don't understand how vast and wide scale it is. And I think there are various ways we can do that. Uh, like I mentioned, there is a national database that crime is reported into. And of the 50 crimes that a police officer can select, there's only one for computer crime. It's called hacking or computer intrusion. But that doesn't really encapsulate what really happens, right? Because say, take the city of Baltimore. I think a lot of listeners remember that a year or so ago, Baltimore faced a massive ransomware attack and impacted all services from people being on the final taxes to not be able to get their marriage certificates. It really impacted folks and it lasted a long time and it cost the city millions of dollars, right? But if you're to record that, it's just one incident. Is that the best way to conceptualize and think of that one incident when it had such large magnitudes? So it's not only counting each incident, it's making sure we look at the impact of that incident. And those, that's a very difficult uh, solution to come up with because it's so different compared to like an auto theft. We know that one car was stolen. It's, it's very different compared to saying a whole city being taken down and that counting as one. So we need to understand how we conceptualize the impact of it when we're actually counting those incidents as well. So give me the argument for a second. If you were sitting in the office of a skeptical democratic center, by the way, this is something that think tank people do all the time. I, I worked at a think tank way back in my own career and we used to do this. We used to go sit down in, in offices and try and persuade staff and elected officials of our approach. So what argument would you offer? You, you get a couple minutes with a senior staffer or with a US Senator. What, what does that argument sound like? And is it any different in a, in a, because this is just a reality of our system, is the argument any different if it's a Democratic Senator versus a Republican Senator? Not at all, because any member of Congress has a constituent who has been impacted by some kind of cyber incident, no matter what. And actually we did some fascinating research. We put together a map of congressional districts on our website, and it shows where ransomware occurred in congressional districts. So we take that and we show members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans, hey, this is a real thing in your area and your constituents are being hurt by it. And you can even pull, uh, the FBI has fascinating data uh, as far as the impact, the financial impact per state. So you can look at FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center and pull up New Hampshire's cost, and it will show you how much the uh, cybercrime has impacted New Hampshire. Top of my head, I don't know, but I'm sure it's going to be in the millions of dollars. Worst of all is that the FBI, to their, they even admit this, they only collect 10% of all incidents. So you got to add 90 more percent to however X amount that dollar threshold is. And that's where we come down to is that your constituents are being impacted. It is costing them money. And now in the wake of pandemic, it impacts your children being able to learn. It impacts your ability to have telehealth appointments. It impacts your ability for us to even have conversations online because I think very early on in the pandemic, people were familiar with the Zoom bombing concept in which people were going into Zoom conferences that were supposed to be there, and they were going into alcohol anonymous classes to uh, just make fun of them, right? And so people's privacies are at stake as well. So at the end of the day, that's the conversation we have is that even though it sounds amorphous, even though we think it's just nation state adversaries, which it is, and that is part of it, it still impacts your voters and it's something that they care about. As the problem continues to accelerate, 
spiral and as suggested by the Russian hack in 2020, perhaps get deeper and deeper. What does the world look like for Americans if we don't get a handle on this along the lines of the prescriptions that you've laid out here? It's just going to get worse. We've already seen ransomware increase tremendously uh, the past year when it comes to impacting schools and when it comes to impacting hospitals. These are, these are smart criminals. They know that we're transitioning our lives online, and so they want to hit us where we're going to hurt and that I need to get my, ch my children back online. So as a school administrator, I'm going to pay the ransom, right? And so what they're going to do is that they're going to keep targeting us where we need those services. And it's not necessarily that, well, we have time to rebuild our networks and to get a different storage system in place. So in the short term, what happens is that it's costlier. It's going to impact us in our daily lives. And as I mentioned earlier in the German example, it could cost real human lives. So if we don't take care of it, it's just going to abet the criminals and they think they can operate with impunity and they're going to keep doing it and doing it until it gets to the point where it's, it's no longer tenable. My, my personal belief is that if, if policymakers don't act now, they're going to be forced to act because it's going to become such a groundswell of impact that everyone is, is going to be right on his face that we need to do something. So rather than panicking at that moment and putting into uh, policies that may not be well thought out, we have the time and space, even though it is Bad now, we still have the time and space to implement thoughtful policy recommendations to do some real good and to do some real change. And that's why we made that report, because we wanted to make sure we could put forth really good recommendations that's been vetted by several subject matter experts in order to ensure that we cover our basis when it comes to this issue. Given everything you know and all your contacts on Capitol Hill, the incoming administration, are you pessimistic today or are you optimistic that we're going to get on top of this? I am extremely optimistic uh, with the incoming Biden administration and those who are coming in Congress. Uh, Biden has already nominated senior folks within his National Security Council who are top cyber officials. He is going to nominate a national cyber director. So he's putting into place great people at the federal level. He understands the issue. He knows how to call our adversaries. He was very forceful in his condemnations of the Russians when it comes to solar wind tax when it comes to uh, meddling in our elections. And he has shown no aversion to hold those type of actors accountable. And also, he knows how to work on a bipartisan basis. He knows how to get legislation done. And it helps that we now have a uh, Democrat control of Congress because they can get more things done. And you have senior officials like uh, Senator Hassan, who, is, who understands the issue very, very well and as well as Senator Warner and other senators who have been here for a while understand the issue areas, and they can work with the Biden administration to implement real good change uh, to tackle this issue. All right, so give me the seven-second elevator pitch to wrap up. As an expert, if we make the changes you've suggested, people in America will be better off because... Because they know that their children will have access to their education. They know they will to have their privacy intact. And at the end of the day, they know that they will be secure in any type of form that they engage online and that we will hold bad actors accountable for their actions. Michael Garcia, thank you so much for your expertise, for laying this out. Where can people find the report that you did? What's the, what's the website? If you just go to Third Way and you Google U.S. Cyber Enforcement, that's probably the best way. It'll take you straight to that link. You click it right there, and there's tons of infographics 
my contact information on there as well, as well as my colleagues and happy to chat with anybody further about this. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Matt. We really appreciate it.